One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 26. Last time we brought our narrative to that critical point, the 30th of June, where the decision to commit American ground forces was finally made. Thanks to the legwork already done in the UN Security Council, the 24th Division of the US 8th Army was able to move from Tokyo to the Busan perimeter under the banner of the United Nations. 
It was with great expectations that General Walker's men marched, but the months of July and August 1950 would be a traumatic experience for the 24th Division, as well as their Republic of Korea allies. Before long, a headlong retreat in the face of superior tactics, armour and organisation was underway, and by late August 1950, a small pocket on the Korean peninsula was all that remained of the South Korean state. Yet, although such a state of affairs appeared grave, in reality, this was but one of many trying phases of the conflict. On the way from all corners of the world were the military delegations of the UN. For the first time in history, collective security would be invested in and a defenceless country would welcome its international protectors. It was exactly what the League of Nations was supposed to have done. Yet the arrival of these delegations didn't mean that the South Korean beachhead was out of the woods just yet. In this episode, we'll begin our analysis of the military situation in the war up to the end of 1950 in the light of the UN's decision-making processes, its great and hopeful triumphs, and ultimately its shattering defeats and woeful shortcomings in the face of Chinese intervention. If you're wondering, don't worry, we'll go into more detail into these individual issues in later episodes, but this episode and the one before this one are really designed to kind of bring you up to speed and and give you an idea of how the overall course of the war goes, just so that the, the big picture is a little bit clearer. So, if you're ready for that, let's get into this. I will now take you to the UN Security Council in late June 1950. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956. If you weren't aware, 1956 is a special series that is available to $5 patrons and above. What is it all about? Well, 1956 is concerned with sort of what came after the Korean War. So if you like this era of history, like the early 1950s or so, and you're wondering how the United States, Britain, Europe, the Soviet Union, China, etc. got on with things afterwards, 1956 is the series for you. For $5 a month, you'll be able to access a series spanning 35 episodes. That is right, 35 episodes. You won't get this anywhere else other than Patreon, but you definitely should check it out if extra series is your thing. Maybe you have too much content as it is, that is fine. Maybe you just want to support, maybe you're slightly curious and you want to check it out. Either way, guys, 1956 has been a real pleasure to research and If you weren't aware, I have mentioned this before, but it's split up into two parts. The first part looks at the Soviet aspect of the year. In other words, how the Soviet Union dealt with revolts in Poland and Hungary in the wake of the kind of efforts to get rid of Stalin's influence, which was pretty darn strong. The second part of 1956 looks at the Suez Crisis, and in the space of 20 episodes builds up to how the Suez Crisis happened, what happened within it, and how exactly major powers such as the British and Americans were involved, what they did right, what they did wrong, who we blame for it, and the usual fun stuff. If that sounds good to you, and if you're interested in more diplomacy, more intrigue, and more Cold War era shenanigans, please do check out 1956, which you can access on any of your podcatchers simply by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, paying a fiver a month, and then from there on accessing more history. Patreon is by far the best way to support this podcast monetarily, guys, and I really appreciate all the support that's come so far. In any case, the song of the week this week is 
It ain't gonna rain no more. And that's by the International Novelty Orchestra. It was released in 1924 and it's a pretty catchy song, guys. So I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy it anyway and we'll be back with episode 26 of the Korean War. Before we begin this episode properly, have a listen to the following audio extract. Originally I said I was going to put a lot of these audio clips into this series, but things didn't exactly pan out. Sometimes they can be a bit too invasive, sometimes they don't quite work, but this one fits pretty well. In this extract we hear about the approval and the reactions to the Security Council resolution on the 27th of June, so have a listen to it. This is United Nations Radio, broadcasting from our booth in the Security Council Chamber at Lake Success. Ladies and gentlemen, today's historic council session on the Korean invasion has just been opened by this month's president, Sir Benigo Rao of India. Sir Benigo has in his hand a cablegram just received from the UN Commission, which has been in Korea for two years, seeking to unify that country. The commission on the spot in Korea has the facts of the invasion. We'll learn them in just a moment. We take you now to the floor. Here is Sir Benigo Rao reading the cable from Korea. Commission's present view on basis, this evidence, is first that judging from actual progress of operations, Northern regime is carrying out well-planned, concerted and full-scale invasion of South Korea. Back in the radio booth again, Ambassador Warren Austin is asking for the floor. He too has a message to read, this one from President Truman, referring to the invasion of South Korea and to last Sunday's council resolution on aid to the victim. Let's go back to the floor as Mr. Austin quotes from President Truman's message. In these circumstances, I have ordered United States air and sea forces to give the Korean government troops cover and support. 
Mr. Austin is now offering a new resolution to the council. Here is its main provision. The Security Council recommends that the members of the United Nations furnish such assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repel the armed attack and to restore international peace and security in the area. Although few would deny that the Korean War was primarily an American military adventure, in that it involved primarily American soldiers fighting on the South Korean side, it is generally forgotten that the Korean War was significant in how it established what many hoped would be a precedent for collective action and for the fulfilment of the UN's weighty promises. The image of the United Nations coming to the aid of the tiny South Korea, where few could be said to hold any national interests, demonstrated the enthusiastic force of the new institution, though the process was not without its critics. The tale of the tape, so to speak, was nonetheless very impressive. One historian gave the figures for the joint contributions, noting that, During the whole period of the collective action in Korea, the American contribution has been far in excess of the contribution of other members combined. Considerably less than half of the members of the United Nations have made offers of military assistance. By the end of August 1952, 16 members had ground forces in action, 8 had naval forces and 5 air forces. 17 members altogether were represented. In addition, 5 other members had offered transport or medical facilities which were being used. 6 members, not included in the above, had made offers which had been accepted or acceptance of which had been deferred. The first British contingent to arrive in Korea on the 28th of August 1950, in the midst of rapturous displays of appreciation and welcome from both the native Koreans and the American servicemen trapped in the Pusan perimeter, was something to behold. We will spend time in a future episode detailing the British side of the story, and the means by which the British delegation and its naval support arrived in South Korea. But for now it should suffice to note that the fulfilment of the Anglo-American alliance was subsumed into the debate over whether or not to intervene in Korea, and for several other nations that sent delegations, the motives behind sending them would be similar. While a nascent mood of defiance and a desire to vindicate the high-minded claims of the United Nations definitely played a role, the collective security action was very much seen as a Western exercise, where those involved received, at the very least, a temporary boost to their anti-aggression and anti-communist credentials. Yet it has to be said that initially the notion that nations other than the United States were obliged to intervene in South Korea was looked on in a not wholly favourable light. In fact it would be fair to say that a mood of distaste initially accompanied the United Nations resolution on the 7th of July which called first and foremost for the unification and centralisation of military command under the United States. Such a centralization would be necessary because within this resolution was also the inferred request for military assistance from other UN member states. Indeed, the resolution was greeted with both disappointment and surprise. Up to that point, the image of the United States coming to the aid of South Korea under the banner of the United Nations was believed to be, by many nations at least, enough. The Americans possessed the largest army and strongest economy after all, so surely they could achieve, alongside the unified diplomatic support of their NATO and UN allies, some kind of victory in Korea. 
In the case of Britain, the call for military aid was less surprising, and since Anglo-American statesmen were regularly in contact about the situation, it was readily anticipated. For those states who were out of the loop, though, or didn't happen to be as good of a friend with America, there was no indication that the Americans couldn't handle this themselves, until it was learned that the 24th Division was in headlong retreat, and that one engagement in particular, that of Task Force Smith on the 5th of July, had illustrated firsthand the extent to which the North Korean People's Army possessed the advantage. As he had watched events unfold with increasing shock and unease, General MacArthur sent several urgent cables to Washington in the first two weeks of July 1950, requesting reinforcement with at least four new divisions. MacArthur seems to have accepted that genuine combat divisions well-versed in the trappings of war were required, rather than several new installments of his anemic 8th Army from Japan. The UN resolutions between the 25th of June and the 7th of July granted MacArthur the opportunity to think big, because they provided these necessary divisions and resulting foreign support. It was also on the 7th of July that MacArthur received some welcome news, news that he had surely anticipated for some time. He was to be in charge of this multinational army, and it was up to him to lead it to victory. As far as the UN Security Council was concerned then, it had met the challenge presented by the North Korean attack, and it remained now for the other member states to proceed according to their circumstances. Have a listen to this clip, and you'll see exactly how that went down. United Nations flag flies today over the command headquarters which direct United Nations forces in action in Korea. We stood today on the roof of the headquarters building, a crowd of us in the Tokyo sunshine, as General MacArthur looked up to the silken blue flag, and then the United Nations commander spoke these words. I accept this flag with deep emotion. It symbolizes one of the greatest efforts man has ever made to free himself. The Far East Command will do its best to uphold this noblest of ideals. Between the 7th of July and the 7th of October 1950, the UN behaved as a multinational police force tasked with righting the wrongs of the North Korean government. During this period of the conflict, the forces of UN members and the Republic of Korea were engaged in slowing down and finally stopping the North Korean advance, and in driving the North Korean forces back to the vicinity of the 38th parallel. It was during this time that great strategic advances and gains were made, spearheaded of course by MacArthur's famous landing at Incheon on the 15th of September. Yet, while these gains were impressive, and the collapse of the overstretched and exhausted North Korean People's Army was a sight to behold, one may still be struck by the question of why. This question is especially important because by asking it, we can understand why so many objections were levelled at the likes of MacArthur for taking the war beyond its original parameters and launching an invasion of North Korea proper from the 9th of October. As we're no doubt aware by now, MacArthur did not act alone in this regard. How was the question of intervention actually presented to the member states though, when the UN could not officially compel any state to act? The answer is found in the terms of the UN Charter. It was within this Charter, essentially the Constitution of the United Nations, that action against aggressors on a collective basis was justified. Indeed, since the notion of preserving peace and the idea of collective security was laid down in Article 1 of the Charter, 
One historian has noted that the mutual defence idea was one of the United Nations' primary purposes. It is hard to argue with this interpretation, since the United Nations was established in the aftermath of the Second World War, after all, with the horrors of global conflict still fresh in everyone's mind, and the determination to avoid such conflagrations again being at the top of everyone's agenda. We should bear in mind that the United Nations Security Council did not order any member states to do anything, even as the strategic situation of General Walker's forces deteriorated in Pusan. This is especially notable because according to the UN Charter, the Security Council's resolutions actually contained the power of an order. This was why resolutions approved by the UN Security Council were said to have so much weight. On the other hand, though, a resolution in the UN General Assembly was seen as a recommendation or a note of the consensus in that body. Decisions taken in the General Assembly then, and votes that resulted in decisions being made, were not legally binding decisions, and they would often be used more as a weather vane than as any procedure in international law. The Security Council, though, in contrast, was where the big boys played. On occasion, the General Assembly's recommendations would reach the Security Council, but the process was not guaranteed, thanks in large part to the sheer number of interests floating around in the General Assembly compared to the more compact Security Council. The Security Council was the only body of the United Nations with the power to issue military, economic or other kind of sanctions, and the General Assembly was not entitled to vote on what the Security Council put forward. Thus, the Security Council had the power and legal authority to order the member states of the United Nations to act. But the more relevant question of moral authority had to be answered first. It was plain that in this first test of the United Nations Security Council's prestige, more would be required than a simple statement and insistence by the Security Council that their word was law. National governments, of course, would have the final say, and it was with the aim of persuading these governments in mind that a coercion campaign of sorts was got underway. This multifaceted campaign began in July, and its primary aim was to bring about an international intervention under the auspices of the United Nations and under the command of the United States. If we were to break it down, I can present three tactics through which means the United Nations brought about a large multinational military commitment. The first of these was the exercising of political pressure independent of the United Nations, which included the sense of one's national interest and the desire, above all, to remain on friendly terms with America. These are factors which we will explore in more detail in the next episode. The second was the belief in the inherent need to fulfil the UN's obligations to justify its high-minded goals and to ensure that it didn't meet the same fate as the League of Nations. The third concern which compelled member states to act is a little bit trickier to explain, but it revolved around the moral question of what was going on in Korea, and requested that the member states determine for themselves, according to the special circumstances of the time, what the UN Charter left them obliged to do. One historian has even called this moral blackmail, and in a sense, that is true, but as the historian Leland Goodrich explained, the UN Security Council actually did far less than the Charter entitled it, technically at least, to do. Goodrich wrote, Under the terms of these resolutions and the provisions of the Charter, the Security Council, instead of ordering members to take specific military measures, as the Charter originally envisioned, recommended to members that they come to the support of the victim of aggression. Members, instead of being obliged to carry out specific commitments, 
were asked to determine for themselves, subject to the general commitments contained in the purposes and principles of the Charter, and in light of special circumstances, what, if any, assistance they would offer. Perhaps the 7th of July resolution, which established a unified command under MacArthur, can be seen as a kind of trade-off where UN Security Council resolutions were concerned. The language and weight of the resolution would be diluted, so that members would be asked to consult the Charter, rather than simply being obliged to intervene. In such a diplomatic way, so obviously it interests us, some members could choose to use a get-out-of-jail-free card, Others could interpret the Charter to necessitate military intervention. In return for this downgrade of a resolution's potency, the Supreme Commander Allied Powers, otherwise known as SCAP, was to be Douglas MacArthur. As per the terms of the Charter, military operations would normally be conducted by the Military Staff Committee of the United Nations. Yet, the heavy US involvement and de facto American leadership in the war enabled Washington to leverage its position in the Security Council and request both a unified military command and an American supreme commander, that being MacArthur. American requests for such leadership were not entirely based on the notion that America somehow deserved this position or wanted to direct the war's course. This reason helps to explain how a great deal of America's behaviour was justified, but it doesn't help to explain all of it. You see, we should bear in mind that in July 1950, the Soviet delegate Jacob Malik was still absent, but that Washington could not guarantee how long this boycott would last. Understanding that if they put the war's direction in the hands of a multinational body and the Soviets returned to the UN Security Council, that disaster could occur. It was decided to insulate the command of the war from any political concerns by basically putting it in Washington's hands. And this decision did prove timely because on the 1st of August 1950, Malik returned to the UN Security Council, and from that point, in the words of one historian, no effective United Nations machinery existed, nor was any established, for giving continuing political guidance to the United States in the discharge of the responsibilities of the Unified Command. Yet, to return to the question of interpretation and multinational intervention, as per the terms of the Charter, think about this. Everything was fine and dandy, so long as those nations taking part believed they were in Korea, as the resolution had stated, for the purpose of restoring international peace and security in the area. However, the reason why the 7th of October 1950 is marked as a kind of cut-off point is because, from that stage, with a new resolution proposing the crossing of the 38th parallel and the invasion of North Korea proper, the UN action ceased to be a mere defensive or police action, and it became instead a genuine war of conquest against Kim Il-sung's regime. With the Soviets putting up opposition in the Security Council, strongly, by the 7th of October, the American responsibility for the war and for the international delegations became more pronounced. The involved member states didn't necessarily object to the ridding of Kim Il-sung's regime. What they objected to was the fact that an invasion of North Korea wasn't what they had signed up for originally. And it was at this point that a distinction between the powers of the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly that we mentioned earlier becomes so important. With the Soviet delegate blocking any advancement of the conflict's discussion in the Security Council through August and September, as though making up for lost time in the process, the UN General Assembly assumed a new importance in Washington's eyes. 
While the General Assembly didn't have the legal authority to put forward pieces of legislation that the United Nations would have to adopt in Korea, it did provide another weapon, that of moral legitimacy. Under pressure of the sudden change in the military situation and with the strong urging of the United States delegation, the General Assembly adopted the resolution on the 7th of October 1950 recommending steps to be taken to bring about the establishment of an independent, unified and democratic Korea and conveying by implication authorization for the unified command to undertake the destruction of North Korean forces in Korea in order to permit the restoration of international peace and security. Remember, the General Assembly's resolution here was not a legally binding ruling, and it was instead a kind of representation of the assembled states' opinion on this new direction in the war. But by acquiring approval for this new direction, Washington could point to its course as one justified by the consensus of the General Assembly. Such justification was hardly necessary in the mind of MacArthur, of course, who was by mid-October flying high with the success of his Inchon landings, and the newfound prestige and glory which came along with it. Yet, for the sake of appearance more than anything else, the General Assembly resolution was campaigned for and its passage was greatly valued. Morally justified in their actions, Washington could also claim that the 27th of June resolution calling for the restoration of peace in the area was only possible to fulfil by removing the threat which North Korea posed. Otherwise, it was said, another war on the continent would emerge shortly after peace had been brokered. The significance of the 7th of October resolution in the General Assembly was also found in the Charter regarding the potential consequences of crossing the 38th parallel. To those delegates that worried about Chinese intervention, the argument went that an invasion over the 38th parallel did not necessarily have to result in the total destruction of the northern regime and the advance of the Allies up to the Alu River. Some of the more moderate delegates hoped that by invading North Korea, the Allies would produce the best possible settlement one which would prevent such a conflict from happening again, likely through some form of conditional surrender. As history has demonstrated, the Allied nations were right to fear. The warnings and condemnations of the Allied actions in North Korea, by those member states that weren't exactly happy with the way the war was going, went unheeded by MacArthur and were publicly dismissed as bluffing by his own staff. Some nations weren't so sure if this was just bluffing, and they urged a representation at least to be made to the communists to ease their concerns. We will of course examine the different sides to this aspect of the conflict in the future, but because we're just looking at the overall picture now, it suffices to note for the moment that MacArthur ignored these pleas, and infamously told President Truman that the Chinese wouldn't intervene when the President and the General met face to face on Wake Island on the 15th of October. Four days later, and in total secrecy, the first waves of the Chinese People's Volunteer Army crossed the Yalu River, and under strict discipline, they managed to largely evade the air reconnaissance of the Allies. By this point, by mid to late October 1950, MacArthur was triumphant. His sense of imminent triumph and the whole takeover of Korea grew, as the Allies pushed closer and closer to the border with Manchuria, and Kim Il-sung went into hiding with his government in the mountains. In the meantime, MacArthur had restored Syngman Rhee as president of the now liberated Republic of Korea, and the regrettable reprisals now began against those suspected of sympathising with Pyongyang. When revisionist accounts of the Korean War, or those armchair generals on Reddit or the like that don't know any better, present what they claim is a new interpretation of the Korean War, 
One of the points normally levelled against the traditional narrative is that which severely critiques the character and policies of Syngman Rhee. Rhee's responsibility for politically charged murder and his dictatorial powers in the Republic of Korea are routinely condemned, and this is of course fair enough, but too often it is fashionable to gloss over the similar actions and atrocities committed by the North Korean People's Army. The glossing over the North Korean record is often accompanied by still more fanciful claims, that Kim Il-sung's regime was not as dependent on the Soviets as Rhee's was on the United States, since communism was already established in North Korea without Moscow's help, or perhaps the most hilarious claim, considering the evidence we've encountered, that ludicrous notion that the South is as responsible for the war as the North, because the South provoked the North in months past with its provocative stance along the border. We've hopefully seen enough of the story thus far to discredit any such claims. As far as who the quote-unquote bad guy of the Korean War is, we can certainly label North Korea as the aggressor without too much fussing. American intelligence records, the collapse of the Republic of Korean Army in the face of the onslaught, and the evident pace of the North Korean People's Army as they conquered their way down the peninsula, all point to a regime in the North that launched a premeditated attack on its neighbour, with conquest in mind. Since I've already received my fair share of smarmy emails regarding the real story of the Korean War, I hope this will serve as a message to those that think they have it all figured out. As someone who is adopting a new approach to the origins of the war, I'm not so blind as to think that I need to apply my tinfoil hat to every aspect of the traditional narrative. Sometimes, as Occam's razor suggests, the simplest answer is the right one, and in the case of the Korean War, The simple fact is that the North invaded with overwhelming military superiority to surge down the peninsula, but that it fell short of total victory only by a small margin. Indeed, as later episodes on the relationship between the Soviets and North Koreans will demonstrate, the North had an even greater superiority than is generally appreciated, but thanks to the keen Soviet manipulation of events, events were destined to take a different course. With the meeting at Wake Island in the past, MacArthur's ego reached new heights, even amidst curious reports of Chinese intervention in the northwest of the peninsula. Great plans were implemented in the Home by Christmas campaign, and a Thanksgiving dinner with all the trimmings was even arranged for the American soldiers in late November as their bemused allies looked on. Launching what was anticipated to be the final campaign of the war, on the 24th of November the Allied nations surged forward for just one last push to be met the next day with the first of many Chinese counterattacks. Within a few weeks, MacArthur would be choking on his words, and his folly would be upheld for all the world to see. In a series of shattering campaigns against the Allied advance, which had once appeared so secure and so sure of victory, the Chinese People's Volunteer Army surged forward in wave after wave against the forward lines of the advance, cutting off and surrounding those that couldn't manage to get away in time. The Chinese action created absolute chaos, and it decimated the morale of the Allied forces. Fighting retreats turned to routs in several areas, as the supremely outnumbered Allied armies ran out of ammunition in the face of the swarms of Chinese, their common tactic being to walk, sometimes run, in an orderly fashion towards the Allied lines. In several cases, the first waves of Chinese didn't even all possess weapons, and when the second and third waves came, the weapons were picked up from their fallen comrades, if the first wave, or second wave even had weapons that is, as though such a morbid act was part of the overall plan. 
the Allies simply couldn't keep pace with the sheer number of Chinese, and a withdrawal was made in all haste back to the 38th parallel in mid-December, where a further piece of demoralising news was learned. On the 22nd of December, the Allied commander, General Walton Harris Walker, was killed in an automobile accident. It seemed not even the top brass was safe from this cursed war. On the 27th of December, a Lieutenant General Matthew B. Ridgway assumed command of the Allied armies, but it's unlikely that the soldiers on the ground thought all that much of this appointment, engrossed as they were with the tasks of saving their own lives and creating some kind of defensive strategy. The successive shocks to the system were felt all the more intensely thanks to the horrific weather conditions which engulfed the peninsula. Freezing temperatures and snowstorms, the likes of which native Koreans hadn't seen in living memory, compounded the misery of the Allied armies, who began to wonder how their superiors could have led them into such a mess, and how they could have got it all so wrong. One minute they were leading the charge to liberate the peninsula, now they were fleeing for their lives in the face of an enemy which they had been told to not count on. On the 16th of December, even before the worst pieces of news were received, President Truman had declared a state of national emergency in the light of the situation in Korea, and the US armed forces were placed on high alert. The UN Security Council broke down into intensive squabbles, and produced no concrete resolutions to the evident turmoil on the peninsula, which was transforming Korea into something of a frozen wasteland. On the 17th of December, Kim Il-sung was deprived of his command of the North Korean People's Army and was replaced by the Chinese. This act was symbolic for two reasons. First, it underlined the fact that the Chinese had now taken the initiative for the war from the North Koreans. And second, it reflected a trend in North Korean geopolitics which remains true to this day. The reorientation of Pyongyang away from Moscow and towards Beijing. As we'll see in the future, Stalin began retreating from the Korean situation throughout the summer and he instructed Soviet agents to give off the appearance of disinterest in the Korean War and horror at the conflict's escalation. The Soviets were to position themselves as the honest intermediary between the two sides and Stalin was to assume the role of arbiter of disputes who only wanted the best for everyone. This new role was of course motivated by Stalin's core purpose the act of alienating the People's Republic of China from the West. Now that the first part of his plan had pretty much paid off, and Korea had been engulfed in a war which would divide and distract the world, the second part of the Soviet plan called for the cutting loose of the North Korean raft away from Moscow's orbit, as it drifted downstream into the Chinese net. Since the situation in Korea was now a geopolitical, as much as a geographic strategic problem for Mao, Stalin was confident that the deep-seated hostility and suspicions towards the gradual Allied advancement towards the Yalu River would do his job for him. And, you must admit, he was right. Should the Allies have stopped at the 38th parallel then? Would this have prevented a Chinese intervention? And was it even possible to halt at the border considering the mood at the time and the relative independence of action that MacArthur enjoyed? These are all debatable questions that have no fully comprehensive answers. Whatever our conclusions on those questions though, it has to be acknowledged that the action which the Allied nations had originally signed up and provided soldiers for was not realised. From late November it was apparent that members of the United Nations found themselves faced with a larger war, with victory in doubt, instead of being nearer to the implementation of the General Assembly programme for Korea. 
and it certainly could be argued that this major setback had been due in part to defects in the organisation and conduct of the collective military operation. It is easy to criticise the methods and structure of the UN in this regard, in particular in the command sphere, where MacArthur was given nearly dictatorial powers to act as he saw fit, regardless of the consequences. A strong argument can be made that more adequate provision should have been undertaken from the very beginning for participation by other members, at least those with forces in Korea, in the giving of political guidance to the United Nations commander. Surely some sort of allied committee representing those with military forces in Korea could have been established, and this committee could have been tasked with the command. The removal of MacArthur from the equation would certainly have provided the Allies with a more cautious, rational command style. While it was unquestionably true that the US had a larger stake in the operation than any other UN member, the stake of other members was not negligible, especially considering that they were much less able than the United States to absorb losses that might result from mistakes made. In the realm of how military policy leaked into foreign policy, it has to be said that by leading these nations against the Chinese, the independence of several states was compromised, since in the mind of Beijing, these states were lumped into the western clique of nations sent against its interests. The Chinese point of view was levelled and held against those participating nations, whether their home governments in question had approved of this new course of the war, or not. In Mao's mind, it seemed as though these allied states were now guilty by association, since they had been led to this policy by their American friends. And in light of this, some members felt quite reasonably that the American government, whether for domestic, political or other reasons, did not go as far as it should have in giving assurances to communist China. It should also be noted, in line with the earlier note on MacArthur, that Washington failed to keep a tight enough leash over the field commander. It was as though Washington forgot that by acting, they inferred that they spoke for their allies on the ground, as well as for themselves. To claim to speak for the other 16 nations that provided their own armed delegations was one thing, but to direct this policy in a hostile manner against the Chinese, whom many members had no truck with and didn't want to damage their relations with, this was another issue entirely, and the American insensitivity to these allied concerns was heavily resented. It was of course easy to resent and pick holes in the American behaviour while the war seemed to be collapsing, and so the order of the day for 1951 was to turn this disastrous military situation around. This was easier said than done though, and the process would not be without its casualties, in both the military and the political sphere. Next time guys, we'll row our narrative back a bit and examine the case studies of two powers in particular, the delegations sent by Turkey and New Zealand, to acquire a better picture of the arguments for allied collaboration and national interest which were bandied about and often wedded together. Any New Zealand or Turkish listeners, please do get in touch. And if you're interested in what we're talking about here, please do share this episode, or talk about it with your friends. We'll then begin our analysis of the British Contribution, a story of high politics and tension in the Anglo-American alliance. Until then though, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fells' look at the Korean War episode 26. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.